I was thinking, um, you know, just the holiday season and all that's going on. It's uh, hard at times. I was telling the first hour, it's hard where you have, you go from a Christmas song reflecting the glory of angels on high to a scripture reading passage on prostitutes. Hard to transition. (laughs) But I assure you, during the middle of the week, that passage was perfect for where we are in Romans 8. For we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and we know God dwells in us. And we'll pick up on that marvelous theme this morning. I don't know if you've seen the video clips somewhere. The child who comes into a kind of Christmas concert, and he comes and he sits down, and he's giving, getting ready to give the Christmas concert, and he scans the room looking for his parents, doesn't see them. Kids around them start to see their parents and they're in joy and they're waving and they're excited. But this little boy is now sitting in his seat and despondent because his parents are nowhere to be seen. Starting to slump down, become filled with despair, maybe even lashing out at the neighbor who's so excited because they see their parents but he does not see his thinking that he has been abandoned, that his parents are the only parents that haven't showed up, and now he is in distress as he's about to give this performance. And then across the room, he sees the desperate waving of his parents' hands, and his his eyes light up, and his face starts to beam, and all of a sudden, this slumping child is now up on his seat, dancing around, and is filled with joy and anticipation because he knows mom and dad didn't abandon him in his moment to shine. I think about that, and I recognize as the child uh, sees his parents and recognizes the love that he has in his family, I think that is what every child of God experiences when they know God is their father. There are moments when we are uh, feeling away from God and feeling alone and feeling in that despair, but it is every child of God blossoms when they recognize they are near to God. When they're walking in such a way that they are spiritually enriched, that they have that confidence that they are led by God's Spirit, that God's truth reigns in them, there is a blossoming of life that comes out that affects their entire makeup. Their confidence is raised up, they rejoice in in God, and they are uh, encouraged. I thought that is the great example of this principle that we're learning right here in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 17. We are learning of the very evidences of a heart filled with the Spirit so that the child of God has confidence that they belong to God. And I hope that as we work through this passage, your response would be that very thing, that in the presence of God, you would light up because you recognize God's abiding presence in your life. This has been a rich study for us as we have been working our way through this text. It has been working within us in many ways, and I've had many conversations with many members in the church as people at various stages, some saying, I am wrestling with my heart right now. I don't believe that I am there, but I want to be in that place where I know God is ruling in my life. And then others who are like, yeah, I have been resisting the Spirit of God. I haven't been yielding in the ways that I ought to be yielding, and I know 
that has caused me some spiritual despair in my, my Christian walk. And then others who have been saying, yes, I've seen this work where God is leading me and there is great joy So this study for us is rich, and I'm just praying as God continues to work out this study in our ministry life that it would continue to have its effect in your own heart and life, that indeed you would have the rich confidence and assurance that comes from God that you belong to him. And this is what Paul's intention is as he's leading us through this text. Now just to remind you, We have the first two points we've covered here, and these are evidences of God's abiding in us, evidences of the Spirit's abiding. The first evidence we saw in verse 9 was the evident presence of the Spirit. Verse 9, he says that, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The truth we see out of this marvelous passage is God's Spirit abides in his people. If you do not have the Spirit of God, you do not belong to God. God's Spirit abides in us. He dwells in the believer. He resides within us. The idea in this is that uh, like one dwelling in a house, one abiding in a house, this is it. The Spirit abides or dwells within us. Now, I do have to clarify a particular detail here because some have confused this as the idea if the Spirit dwells in us or abides in us, that He physically changes us in some way. The idea is that if the Spirit came upon you, something in you physically changed because the Spirit is now physically in you, abiding in you. And some, even taking this idea or theology, have come and taught something like this. Be careful what you eat because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I.e., you're eating too many carrots, you're going to hurt the Spirit. They never say carrots. It's always Cheetos or something. But it's... Now, the idea is somehow I can physically affect the Spirit of God by what I do to my physical body. And that's not the idea here. The Spirit dwells within us, and it's an immaterial dwelling. It's in our immaterial parts. It's in our heart, our minds. It's a spiritual transformation. The point is the God's Spirit is in us, as the Scriptures indicate, but it isn't in the physical change of the body. It's in an immaterial change, a change of nature, a change of heart, a change of mind and will. He dwells there. And the Spirit, as Paul brings out here, is among his people, so that everyone who is a child of God is one who has the Spirit of God within him, directing him. The Spirit, as we saw last week, seals us for redemption. The Spirit, as we saw last week, is moving us and influencing us and directing us. That's why Ephesians 5 says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. We are to be led by the Spirit. Like a wind that blows the sails of a boat, so the Spirit leads in our life, pushing us along, leading us to righteousness and the truth. It is the Spirit's work. The Spirit has made us new. It's caused us to be born again. The Spirit took the Word of God preached to us and changed our hearts and lives so that we are said to be made new in Christ. The Spirit leads us to righteousness. The Spirit uh, brings conviction of sins. The Spirit helps us understand the things of God. The Spirit affirms that we are united to Christ. All of this is the Spirit's work, and it 
the Spirit abides in the believer. And the marvelous truth of that is this, Christian. You are never alone in your Christian life. You are never alone, even in those moments of your own spiritual battle, when you feel in isolation and separated, even in those seasons when you are under despair because you are in a spiritual battle and you feel isolated and you feel like nobody knows you, nobody understands what you're going through, nobody understands the burden. What you know as a believer is this, God's spirit is with me. Not alone, not isolated. No one else may understand, but even as we're going to see later in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit understands and knows how to pray for us. We may not have what is needed, and our spouse may not know, and our friends and family may not fully appreciate all that we're facing in the moment, but we are never alone. God is abiding with us through this difficulty. So that we don't have to be living in that despair and isolation because God's abiding presence. So that there is an evidence uh, of the Spirit's work in the believer by this dwelling of the Spirit of God within us. So that we have this confidence that we belong to God. So that there is again the emphasis at the end of verse 9 there. If we do not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Everyone who is of God has the Spirit of God within them. That's the first truth. Then the second truth we saw last week was the evident power of the Spirit. We saw that in verse 10, the evident power. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. The evident power of the Spirit of God leading one to righteousness. Literally, that phrase at the end, yet the Spirit is, is alive, is literally translated the Spirit life, or implied there, the Spirit is life on account of or because of righteousness. The Spirit is leading us to righteousness. The life of the Spirit is to direct us to righteousness. This is the evident power within the believer is the spirit producing a life that is delighting in righteousness. So I pointed out last week, this isn't the human spirit as the New American uh, Standard would imply here with the lowercase s. This is the Holy Spirit working. And the reason why, again, is the Holy Spirit, because the, from 9 through 17, the primary emphasis has been on the Holy Spirit. But also because of that phrase, the Spirit is life, it isn't our human spirit giving us life, it is the Holy Spirit which is giving us life. The Spirit of God is leading us to righteousness. And here's the, and he emphasizes this life in verse 10 and 11. The first aspect in verse 10 is life leading to righteousness. Verse 11 is life anticipating, as we will see in a moment, the resurrection. But here, one of the evidences of the spirit dwelling within the believer is an ever increasing appreciation for righteousness. We love righteousness. We delight in righteousness. We seek righteousness. We appreciate righteousness. The spirit of God dwelling in the people of God leads God's people to appreciate righteousness. That's why I love the words of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount when he was given the Beatitudes, and he says there in chapter 5, and I believe verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
The cultivating effect of the Spirit of God dwelling in the heart is this pursuit of righteousness. That one becomes comfortable with righteousness, delighting in the beauty of righteousness, benefits in, righteous, in righteousness. I mean, think about the glory of righteousness, you know, just dwelling among God's people, the peace it brings in relationships, the joy it brings, the beauty of holiness and righteousness. All of this is, again, the Spirit uh, is alive in leading us that way. So while, as he says here in verse 10, the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And what Paul is kind of laying out is two different paths that one is living in. You are either living by the flesh or in the flesh, which is going to lead to sin and the result is death. Or you're going to be by the Spirit, leading to righteousness, leading to life. Those are the two paths. And we are seeking to walk in the Spirit so that righteousness reigns and we will enjoy life. So those are the first two evidences of the Spirit dwelling. And that's a recap from last week. Now we see the final three this morning. Final three evidences of the Spirit's rule in us. And the next evidence is this. There is an evident directing of the Spirit. Verse 11. An evident directing of the Spirit. It says this, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now is Amazing, this passage. You know, if the last passage is life, the righteousness, this is now life anticipating, as we'll see, the resurrection. But what's interesting is where Paul draws our attention to, he draws our attention to the work of the Spirit. Notice there, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Emphasizing the Spirit of God the Father. If this Spirit dwells in you, this Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, notice there in the middle, verse 11, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. It's interesting, is what Paul is saying, it is the Holy Spirit who resurrected Christ. This is, to my recollection, the only account in the New Testament, demonstrating the Spirit's work in raising Jesus Christ. In fact, many other passages put the work on the Father or on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1, for example, says this, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ, notice, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul, very Paul who's saying here in Romans 8 and verse 11, it was the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, is also saying it was the Father who raised him from the dead. And Jesus himself also says this in John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, for this reason, The Father loves me because I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. 
So Jesus says, I'm the one laying it down, and I will raise it up again. So now what one is it? Is it the Father who raised Jesus from the dead? Is it the Son who raised Jesus from the dead? Or is it the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead? And the answer is yes. God did it. Oh, Godhead. And so, I, again, I, I like what Paul said to the Colossians. In Colossians 2.12, he says it like this. We were buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised up with him through faith. And then he says, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Or 1 Peter 1.21 says this, that through him, that is through Christ, we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Here Paul draws our attention to one member of the Godhead, the Spirit, and says the Spirit raised him from the dead. If the Spirit raised Christ from that from the dead, it is this spirit dwelling in you. Paul's now going to build off of this theological idea and give us some hope here. And I love that. He is drawing a theological nuance of basically the whole Godhead at work in uh, raising Christ and accomplishing Christ's work. And it is, okay, if that spirit is at work, he's also at work within us. And what particularly? He is evidently directing us to something. Well, he says here, he raised Christ in the middle of verse 11, raised Christ from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What is he saying here? Is this talking about a physical life right now or is it talking about something later? Well, the future tense there implies something later. He's speaking here of the resurrection, something to come. Not now he is making us alive, though spiritually we are made alive in the Spirit. He's speaking of the resurrection, something to come. Just as Jesus was physically resurrected through the Spirit, so too we will be physically resurrected. So what is the principle here? The principle is this. Every believer now lives in anticipation of the resurrection. The believer now lives and operates realizing this world is but just one temporary transition for them. They live in anticipation of the resurrection and the Spirit of God dwelling within them gives them affirmation that there is more to come. This isn't the whole story. For everyone who does not know Christ, this is it. Live it up now, this is it for you. But for every believer, this is but a temporary transition transition for us there is so much more to come and the evidence of that is a spirit dwelling within us giving us anticipation for this resurrection god's spirit dwells within us i think about this marvelous truth and its operation one of the evidences of the spirit dwelling within us is that we always are living with the awareness that this is but our temporary home and the decisions we're making now are not the permanent decisions yes we have earthly responsibilities yes we have earthly burdens yes we have earthly privileges but none of those things are more important than the eternal None of them are more important than the things that come after the resurrection. Those are the more permanent, the more eternal choices. Those are the more important things that we decide and we seek after. 
And so here is this dwelling or this sense that if God's Spirit is dwelling within us and He had the power to raise Jesus from the dead, He also has the power to raise us from the dead. The temptation for our own hearts when we live through life is to live in the immediate, the immediate choices, the immediate decisions, the, the immediate earthly things around us and think these things are most important. And while they are important, they are not the ultimate important thing for us. And the proof of that is God's Spirit dwelling within us, giving us testimony of what is to come. Testimony of the Spirit's abiding presence. I think about this in regards to uh, the ways that this would apply to us when we're going through particular challenges. For the person who is living well, he is healthy, the person who is living uh, and they have no serious health threats or anything, this principle is a reminder to you that you're making choices that are going to have eternal effects. So be careful how, what you're adding into your life so you're not burdened unnecessarily by things that aren't eternal. Keep it in balance. But think about the person who is in an ailment, who death's door is near. This principle is a principle of encouragement because you, there is no despair Because if God's Spirit is abiding within you, there's no reason to be despairing because the principle is this, the Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead is going to raise you from the dead and you will enjoy eternal life with Him. So everyone marked by the Spirit's abiding presence is marked by living in light of eternity, making choices that reflect eternity. You are directing your life and ordering your life that Eternity is in your perspective. And I like this because this isn't a, a negative threat. This isn't like, oh, get ready, judgment's coming. This is, a, this is an excitement. This is a, anticipate the riches of God's glory to come. This isn't the, a warning passage saying oh, God's wrath is coming. This is a get ready for it, kind of like you know, telling your kids Christmas is coming You know, it's a week away, there is a building anticipation. That's the idea here. If God's Spirit is dwelling within you, there is an ever-increasing anticipation of this power that comes, that makes us alive. So, part of the evaluation of our own hearts is saying, what am I living in light of? Is there anything in my life that would demonstrate that the earthly things have taken priority over the heavenly things? I live in such a way that I don't. I live as if there is no eternity. Well, then that is not evidencing the presence of the Spirit of God abiding. Now, the fourth evidence. Fourth evidence, verse twelve and thirteen is this: there is an evident obligation to the Spirit. An evident obligation to the Spirit. So then, brethren. We are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you were living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is an evident obligation to the Spirit. Notice the negative that Paul puts out here. It says, first on the negative... We are not under obligation to the flesh. We're not under obligation 
to live to the flesh's desires. We're not under obligation to seek the flesh. We're not under obligation to obey its commands in any way, to follow the fleshly calls, the fleshly temptations. We are not slaves to the flesh, he says. We're not under obligation. We are capable of resisting. There's no obligation in any sense that we must obey the commands of the flesh. In fact, we are free to live in the Spirit. And it's interesting. I know as soon as I say a statement like that, the heart temptation that comes up. But I'm only human. We, we're all sinners. We all sin. And I admit, you're right. That is true. We all sin. Your pastor sins. Your elders sin. You sin. We all are sinners. You can ask my kids. You can ask my wife. I'm a sinner just as much as you are. It's true. We are all sinners. But the truth that Paul lays out here is while we are sinners, we are not under obligation to sin. There's no necessity for it. In fact, the scriptures teach quite the opposite, that we are free to live in newness of life now. We're free to live for God. We're free to live in, in the love for God in Christ Jesus. I mean, John chapter 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And Paul told Titus in Titus chapter 2 that the grace of God appeared instructing us to deny ungodliness. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4 that the time past was sufficient for us to carry out the desires of the Gentiles. Clearly, the, the, the emphasis of the New Testament is we're free, free to love God, free to walk in newness of life. And we don't have to give in to the flesh and obey the flesh. But yet we become vulnerable to that very idea that I'm only a human, I'm only a sinner. What would you expect? I only and always uh, uh, do what my flesh calls me to do. But that's the very thing that Paul is confronting here in this text. We aren't under obligation to the flesh. We don't have to go on obeying its commands. And so the question is, when somebody asks this, makes the statement, uh, I'm only human, what exactly are you saying? If you're saying, I live in a corrupted flesh, I, I live with the remaining effects of sin in this mortal body, well, I fully agree. That is true. And it, we know it's true because the Scriptures regularly command us to resist evil. And the Scriptures regularly command us to put off the old man. And the Scriptures regularly command us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would the Scriptures tell us to do those things unless we regularly battle against those the flesh. Right? That is true. But if we mean by that statement, I'm only human, it means, well, can't expect anything else. Well, then Paul actually is saying, oh, on the contrary, you're not under obligation to the flesh, but we're under obligation to the spirits. We don't have to yield to the flesh but we must yield to the Spirit. Notice verse 13 there. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
One of the effects, one of the marked evidences of a believer filled with the Spirit is being led by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. It's a Spirit-filled directing within their life, working against sin, working to crush sin, working to put it out of their life. And again, notice, it is by the Spirit you're doing this. The Spirit of God is leading the person to do that. The Spirit of God is directing them, conforming, conforming them. Mean, it would be like this. It would be yielding our life to the will of the Spirit so that the Spirit would lead us to do things contrary to our fleshly desires. Have you ever thought about this, uh, this effect that takes place of the Spirit's moving in our life, conforming us and conforming our identity? I like to watch human behavior. I kind of like to watch how people respond. It's just one of those things that I do and observe regularly. And I've observed different kind of personalities. There's the kind of personalities that um, uh, they are the ones out front. They're kind of shaping everybody. The kind of, we call them leaders or type A personalities. They're the ones who go out and push actively and everyone just kind of follows under them. And then you have another group of people I like to call personality sponges. Those kinds of people who adapt to whatever environment they're in, whatever personality they're around. That kind of person, when they're around a talker, becomes a talker. Or when they become, come around a quiet person, become quiet. When they're around a joyful person, they're joyful. When they're around a, you know, a person in despair, they're in despair. They're just adapting in their personality to whoever they're around. I think to some degree, this is all of us in, the, in our spiritual lives. We are adapting. We're either being conformed by the flesh or conformed by the spirit. We're kind of adapting in that. We are being shaped by various impulses or desires. Let me illustrate this. Have you ever been around a fearful person for a while? The kind of person who's just, uh, you know, the world's ending. You know, you're, you're going to hit by a car tomorrow. You know, the whole economy's collapsing in 24 hours. You know, you know, on and on, the list of things that go down the line, of things that they're absolutely terrified by, that everything is going to end. You know, this is the final election. This is it. After this election, it's over. We're never having anything, you know, positive come from this. Only for it to repeat four years later, we keep getting the same themes come back. And all of a sudden, you're around that person long enough, and you become fearful like they are. So before you know it, all their fears become your fears. Or the, the kind of person that when you're around an angry person, you know, that person's angry, quick-tempered, and all of a sudden you start becoming quick-tempered and fighting back because if you don't fight back, you're going to you know, be run over by them. And so before you know it, you're both fighting. It's the kind of people you're around, the environment you're in, that starts to shape you and you start to reflect the people around well, it's that very idea, the way that God has made us, that we, ref- we respond and reflect others. It's true principle that Paul brings out here. Is it the Spirit leading you to put to death the deeds of the body? Are you yielding to the Spirit and letting the Spirit conform you? I mean, think about this. Every Sunday morning, what God has purposed and designed that Sunday morning is an opportunity, opportunity for him to conform you into his image. Think about all the ways this happens. You have to get up early in the morning on a Sunday morning after working a long week. Now, I don't know about you, but 
I wasn't jumping out of bed saying, it is Sunday this morning. I was like, okay, here we go. Another Sunday. And then you drive into, you know, drive down to the church and you have to find your parking spot and you have to walk through and then you have to go, all right, I've got to gear up to start talking to people. And then now I'm here, all right, now I have to get ready to pray. All right, and now I have to sing. Uh, and now I have to listen to a guy talk for nearly an hour. When a World Cup game is going on, I, I could tell none of you guys like soccer because you're here this hour, otherwise you'd be at the World Cup. You are being conformed into the image of Christ because this is the Lord's day. And you were doing things you would normally have done, certainly wouldn't have done apart from the Spirit's work. I like to think about it in regards to singing. I wasn't the one walking around singing all the time before I was saved. I mean, think about just singing itself. Singing is conforming us into the image of God because we are now thinking about spiritual truth and we are singing about it. And we are reminding ourselves as we are singing. This is what Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 3. Sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual song. We are reminding one another of what we believe when we sing. And I can tell, as I told the first hour here, I am singing songs I never would have thought of singing if Nick wasn't forcing me to sing them. But now that he is forcing me to sing them, I enjoy them because I am being conformed by that spiritual truth. Think about it. There is nothing else like that. I mean, I I was thinking about, I didn't go to Home Depot and say, all right, I'm going to start singing in Home Depot and get a group of people together and we'll all sing together. That's ridiculous. Unless it's like a flash mob, but then I have to bring my own friends to do that. Only in God's work where he is working to conform us and lead us to do things we wouldn't normally be doing. And this is the Spirit's directing. That's why when one is drifting, they pull away from the Spirit. They pull away from meeting God's people. They pull away from that influence. But the one led by the Spirit says, I have to be there. I have to be with God's people. I have to be engaged with these things because the, by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit is conforming us. He is conforming us on a Sunday morning. He is conforming us each and every day throughout the week. He is shaping our hearts and minds to think about eternal things and do things we wouldn't normally do. Respond in a way that brings God glory. Again, I, I love this. At the end of verse 13, the emphasis here. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is the Spirit of God leading us into this warfare. Yes, I, I know I have to, has to be part of my will. Yes, I have to desire to resist evil, but I know this more importantly, God's Spirit is leading me into that very battle. The Spirit of God is cultivating within me a desire to resist the flesh, to put off the flesh, to not give in to the flesh. So that every believer, every child of God in one sense is kind of like that spiritual uh, personality sponge where we are yielding ourselves to the Spirit and letting the Spirit fill us and direct us. Fill us with the truth. Fill us with righteousness. Fill us in the sense that we delight in the things of God so then that leads us to put off the flesh and resist the flesh. Where, again, 
The battle comes when we aren't giving into the spirit, when we are giving into the flesh. So then, again, the encouragement to us is this, that God is going to take us there. He's going to take us into this battle by his spirit. He's going to lead us into it. And each moment is an opportunity for us to reflect on giving ourselves to the spirit's influence. And the mental reminder for us in the midst of that battle is this, I'm under obligation to follow that. I'm under obligation to yield to the Spirit. I'm not under obligation to the flesh, but I am under obligation to the Spirit. I'm under obligation to respond to God's Spirit, and that's what we train our hearts to, to remember. So in that moment, yes, I must respond to the Spirit. And this is encouraging for us. It's encouraging for each of us, not only to assessment of our own hearts, how sensitive am I to spiritual truth? When it's given, do I have a soft, pliable heart to it, or do I oppose it? Well, no, I I have to cultivate a soft, pliable heart. But it's also encouraging to us that it gives us wisdom. Because any time we interact with anybody and we speak to them truth, the truth of God's word, I know immediately when I've spoken that truth, a child of God is obligated to this. So now I know how one's responding. If they're not responding to the truth, they are not responding as a child of God. And I can encourage them accordingly. Point is one of the evidences of God's spirit dwelling within us is that he is directing us out of obligation to him. He's directing us to put to death the deeds of the body. And he says, the promise, you will live. There is the hope of life. Now here's the final benefit. The final evidence is this. In verse 14 through 17, the final evidence is the evident assurance of the Spirit. Notice verses 14 through 17. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. One of the evident works of the Spirit of God is the assurance of salvation. The Spirit gives assurance. And I love this because, you know, many times in ministry life, someone will come up to me and say, Pastor, just tell me, am I saved? Tell me, tell me I'm a believer. Just just affirm that, uh, that I know God, that I'm a believer, that I'm saved. And I tell them, I can't. I would like to. But I haven't been given that. I haven't been given a special set of goggles that says, ah, I can see that you're elect because I see the hologram on you. Uh, I haven't been given the book of life. Uh, I'd love to go look up the chapter and say, oh, yeah, I see it. Your name's written in Lamb's book of life. I haven't been given that. I haven't been given omniscience so that I know everything, though I've asked for it many times. It would make study a whole lot easier. 
I haven't been given any of those things, so I can't give assurance. I can only point to what the Scriptures say. This is what God says a believer looks like. And I can only point to the promises in the Scripture and say these are the things we must believe in. And I can only point to say here's what the practices a Christian does by his Spirit. I can only point to the evidences, but I cannot give the assurance. But that doesn't mean that we don't have assurance because this very passage tells us, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives assurance. He directs us. He, call, he moves within us and affirms his work within us. Yeah, even though we sin, even though we have good days and bad days, even in those moments where we have been obstinate and rebellious, there is still a sense of the Spirit's affirmation in our life. Because there are then those moments when we are yielding, and those moments when He is directing us, and those moments in which He is demonstrating His marvelous work within us. And it's interesting what is produced in the Spirit-filled life that He is directing. I love it in verse 4. 15 there. We don't have this spirit of slavery where we're living under a terror or a dread. We have this spirit of adoption as sons in which we cry out, Abba, Father. We appreciate the things of God. The child of God is appreciating the things of God, is appreciating God's righteousness and holiness, appreciating his truth, and even drawing near in a love and an appreciation for him. And we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. We're not a long ways away from God living in a dread. We have been brought near to him through the Lord Jesus Christ and his marvelous work. And it's the Spirit directing us in that way. And the hope in verse 17 of a child, if we're children, we're heirs also and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We're being led in this anticipation and hope that is that God is affirming his marvelous work in us and through us. Let me suggest, if you're a kind of person who struggles with assurance, what should you do? What should you do? If you say, I, I struggle with assurance, I, I never have it, what should you do? Well, first of all, I'd say this, love the things the Spirit loves. Believe the things the Spirit has said in his word. And yield to the Spirit in His directing in your life. And most of the time, it's someone who has confessed faith in Christ, someone who's professed a faith in Him and says, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I just don't have assurance. And I just say, then start loving the things the Spirit loves. And yield yourself and delight yourself in the things the Spirit has said, which is recorded in His Word. And then yield to that very directing of His Spirit, and you will have that very assurance. But here, let me give you insight for why you struggle. There are at least, there's one main reason. The reason why anyone struggles with assurance is this, it's unbelief. At the heart of all lack of assurance is unbelief. And that unbelief is manifested in two different ways. First of all, there is unbelief and unwillingness to, to let go of sin. You're just holding on to some pet sin that you just won't let go of. Therefore, you can't have assurance because you won't let go of that sin. You won't yield. You live in obligation to the flesh rather than obligation to the Spirit. So unbelief, holding on to that sin. 
Well, let's assume you have let go of that sin. There's no known sin. You still lack assurance. Here's the second area of unbelief. You will not believe the promises of God in the scripture. That's the second area of unbelief. You don't believe the work of Christ. You don't believe the promises that he has given. So that unbelief, whether in practice, in simple practice, or in uh, denial of the truth, leads to a lack of assurance. If you won't believe God's promises, if you won't believe that what he has accomplished in Christ, if you won't believe that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he is there to help you through your difficulties, that you have no trial at which he has given you that will overtake you, if you don't believe what he has said, then you're not going to have assurance because you're not believing the message given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So at the heart of any lack of assurance is unbelief, either manifested in holding on to a sinful practice or unbelief in what God has said. And just by insights from practice, And interacting with people, somebody who lives a self-righteous life tends to live in a lack of assurance because their life never consistently lines up. And they always live in this despair because they can't live in order. And their struggle is they don't believe what Christ has done on the cross. They don't believe that it's in the righteousness of Christ alone that we're able to stand before God. So the joy then for everyone is go back to this. Yield to the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, delight in the things of the Spirit, and one of the ministries of the Spirit is to give assurance. He gives assurance so that we cry out to God as our Father and we trust upon Him. So think about these truths and think about the child of God. The child of God lights up when these things are evident. When the child of God has the Spirit of God dwelling within them, and they are, again, no longer living for the flesh, but they're living for the Spirit, and they have this increasing desire for righteousness, and they're being driven towards righteousness, and they're living in light of eternity, and they recognize they're going to be resurrected, and they're going to live in God's kingdom, and they're going to worship Christ with the angels of heaven, and they're going to enjoy the benefits of eternal life. And they live right now presently at war against sin, and they live in assurance. They live a robust and healthy Christian life because they know they belong to God. And they can call out exactly what the scriptures say here. Abba, Father, they know they belong to God himself. That's not a work of the flesh at all. It's not a work, man-made work. It is a spiritual work that directs us. So friends, my encouragement to you is in this whole process, as you are evaluating your own spiritual life and going through, through various burdens or difficulties, just come back to these truths and say, what ways am I resisting yielding to the Spirit? Because if I'm yielding to Him, He's going to direct me and give me assurance and spiritual life. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these marvelous truths and just rich rich principles that encourage us in the seasons of spiritual battles. We pray that uh, when the flesh comes, when the temptations are stirred up, whether from inside our hearts or outside, we just pray that we would fix our eyes upon you, 
We train our hearts to respond to the Spirit of God, that we would yield our wills to his directing so that in all things we would be led to righteousness. When we are hopeless, when we are despairing, when we are overwhelmed, we cast ourselves upon you and we rejoice that your Spirit even intercedes for us and helps us when we do not even understand our own hearts. And we pray, Father, in the midst of all of this, we're just so thankful that the resources you've given us to help us to persevere. So may we encourage one another with these words and stimulate one another with these things so that collectively, by your work in all of our lives, we're ministering to one another and pulling one another along for your glory's sake. So work among us so that you would be receiving all glory and honor. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.